For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Okay, we're going to be looking at Romans 15, verses 15 through 21, which I entitled, The Mission of the Church. Paul in Romans 15, verse 15 says, Yet I've written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them. God gave me grace to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, and he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, or put another way, to be set apart by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Jesus Christ in my service to God. So, it's interesting that Paul uses this word here. He uses the Greek word liturgia. And that's actually where we get the word liturgy from. Now, more broadly, this word is used in the New Testament to describe any sort of service. But what's interesting is that when you look into the Old Testament, when you dive into the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament frequently uses this word to describe the worship at the Old Testament temple. So what Paul was probably doing here is he was trying to get them, his audience, to see that in a way the service and work that he was providing by sharing the message of Christ with these Gentile or non-Jewish people was in a way him playing this priestly duty of being sort of an intercessor or an in-between between God and people. And so he says, God gave me this priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Again, he uses this language that would have evoked in the minds of his readers a priest in the Old Testament sense offering sacrifices and worshiping God. Now, I think when you look at this whole subject matter, what we're talking about here really is the New Testament reinterpretation of Old Testament worship. One of the things you see is that the Old Testament contains a lot of different rituals associated with worshiping God. Sacrifices, different ritual washings. And what happens when God institutes His new covenant or His new order of relating to Him that he sort of strips away a lot of the ritualism and keeps the essence of those things for his followers now to embrace and to live out. For example, we see that one of the ways that God says we should offer worship to him is through praise and thanksgiving. Now, I think in our day, when we think of worshiping God in the Christian sense, most of the time we're thinking about a worship service or corporate singing, something that you do on a Sunday morning for a few hours. And yet, one of the things that you see in the New Testament is this concept of worshiping God is way more robust than that, that it entails really many different facets. So I think when we talk about offering God praise and thanksgiving, we think about singing praises to God as a form of worship. And yet, the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 verse 15 says, 
Through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to His name. So, although worshiping God may include singing, it's not limited to singing only. That it includes continually offering praise and thanksgiving to God. Again, it's interesting because the author of Hebrews is using this Old Testament worship language to talk about praising and thanking God. And in the Old Testament, you could offer spontaneous sacrifices of praise to God. You could go into the temple and offer a drink offering as a way to just express how much you love God and how thankful you are that He had given you so much stuff in your life, that you're blessed. So what the author of Hebrews really is doing here is he's sort of stripping down the ritualism and saying, let's keep the essence of that, which is what worship was really all about, which was praising and thanking God. Now, notice he says, too, that, that you should do this continually. It's not something that you do once a week on Sunday morning. It's something that you do every single day. I think one of the critiques that I have about this whole concept of a worship service on Sunday morning is that it's easy to get you to think about worshiping God as only something that you do or accomplish a couple hours once a week, when really worshiping God is something that you do daily and continually. Secondly, offering God your material resources is actually a form of worship. Look at how Paul describes the generous offering that the Philippians gave him while he was on house arrest. In Philippians 4, verse 18 through 19, he says, I'm amply supplied now that I've received the gifts that you have sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now, when you think about giving generously to God's purposes or giving to the poor, you normally don't associate that with worship, and yet the New Testament says that's exactly what we're doing. When we are offering up our financial resources, our material resources to God in faith, that He views that as a type of worship to Him. It's pretty amazing. Not to mention, God also says that offering your entire life to Him is an act of worship. Paul in Romans 12 verse 1 says, I urge you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So in the Old Testament, you could offer what's called a whole burnt offering. You would come into the temple and you take an animal and they would consume the entire animal. Normally when you offered up a guilt offering, you would come in there and only offer certain parts of the animal. But in this case, you would offer up the entire animal. And Paul is saying that in the same way, offering our entire lives up to God is an act of worship. And of course, this is a one-time thing, but it's also a continual thing that we have to go through because we start to realize more and more what is entailed in, in giving our entire lives to God. So, worshiping God entails a lot more than just showing up to a service once a week on Sunday morning, even though you can worship God in that, in that respect. It entails giving your entire life 
It means devoting your entire self to God. David Peterson, who wrote a book on this subject and actually went through the entire New Testament and Old Testament and studied what worship meant in these contexts, says contemporary Christians obscured the breadth and the depth of the Bible's teaching on this subject when they persist in using the word worship in the usual limited fashion, applying it mainly to what goes on in Sunday services. People who emphasize that they are going to church to worship God tend to disregard what the New Testament says about the purpose of the Christian assembly. If Christians are meant to worship God in every sphere of life, it cannot be worship as such that brings them to the church. You see what he's saying here? That this concept of a worship service really obscures the richness of what it means to worship God with your entire life. And one of the real interesting things that he concludes from this as well, if you study the entire New Testament, never once do New Testament authors prescribe that we have a worship service. That's just a modern American conception. Now he says, too, that in addition to these ways of worshiping God, one of the primary ways that we can worship God is by proclaiming the gospel of God. So this represents the fourth way that we can worship God, which is sharing our faith in Christ. Now, we talked a little bit about how what we're going to be discussing here is a little controversial. You know, in our day, I think people are a little bit irritated with Christians in their insistence upon sharing their faith with other people. You'll often hear people say, why are Christians so zealous to share Jesus with people? I mean, it's great that God has changed your life and Christianity is good for you, but why do you feel the necessity to tell people about it or to try to persuade others about this? Just keep it to yourself. Well, I think the first response that I might have is, Jesus calls on his followers to share what God has done in their lives. Look at what Jesus says to the disciples as he's about to go back to the Father in the book of Acts. In Acts 1.8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he's telling them, look, what I've given you, what you've experienced, you're not supposed to just keep that to yourself. This is for everybody. And it's not just for the surrounding regions. This isn't just culturally bound. This is something that needs to go out to the entire earth. So one of the things that God calls on his followers to do is to share the good news about Jesus Christ. You know, when you hear the word gospel, that's just a church word that means the good news. The Bible teaches that because of our wrongdoing, we've separated ourselves, we've alienated ourselves from God. But God, in His love and mercy, has decided to send His own Son, Jesus, to come and die, to pay the debt of our moral wrongdoing. And He did this because He doesn't want to see anyone perish eternally, but He wants all people to come to their senses and turn back to Him. 
And so that represents then one of the central missions of the church, for us to share the message of Christ. Paul saw this as really the focus point of his service to God. He says in Romans 15, verse 20 and 21 in our passage, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. Notice that internal sense that Paul had that I need to go out to the entire world with this. He was consumed by this. And it wasn't something he just made up. This was something that Jesus himself had commissioned him and his followers to do. I think really, one might say that it would be selfish to withhold something that could potentially save people's lives. You know, imagine due to, you know, unfortunate circumstances. You contracted HIV. And one day, several years after you got your diagnosis, someone comes up to you and says, hey, I want to tell you something. And you're like, who, who are you? And the guy's like, doesn't matter. He's like, I know what's happened to you. And I want to let you know that I actually have a cure for your, for your ailment. And so he hands you a vial. And you look at it and you're just like, what is this? And, you know, he just walks away. So you're looking at this thing and you're just scratching your head wondering, what, who is this guy? What is he handing me? And so you get home and you just throw it into your drawer and just leave it there. Days go by, weeks go by, and finally you start to wonder, okay, maybe there's something to this. And you decide that you're going to inject yourself with whatever's in this vial, okay? Not really a smart thing to do. (laughs) But desperate situations call for pretty serious measures. And so you inject yourself with this and you start to notice that your symptoms start to diminish. And you think to yourself, this is amazing. I wonder if I've found the cure to HIV. And so over time, you go to your, t- your doctor to get your regular checkups and over the course of several months, they can't even detect that you have HIV anymore. And the doctors are puzzled. And as you're sitting there with this information that you have have been given this cure to a deadly disease, you think to yourself, you know, maybe I could go out and tell people about this, but they would just think I'm stupid or lying. They would think I was crazy. Or maybe you decide it's just too much effort to try to like tell people about this and, and try to notify scientists so they can investigate what was in this vial. I mean, if you decided to sit on that information while millions of people are slowly dying from this disease, from this infection, I mean, that would be tantamount to really something that is morally wrong. I mean, it's, it's incomprehensible that you would sit there on something like this. And in the same way, If God has given us the cure to something that infects 100% of the human race, that is 
death, then it would only make sense for us to share this message that could provide salvation to those who are perishing. Now, you might be sitting here and you're skeptical about the message of Christianity. I'm not suggesting that you believe what I'm saying here, but you can at least understand why from the Christian standpoint there would be intense interest in sharing this message with others. You know, most of the time, we don't have to tell people who just met Christ to share Him with others. We see numerous examples of this throughout the New Testament. For example, you see Andrew. When Jesus calls him to follow First thing that Andrew does, he, he runs in the direction of his home, finds his brother Peter and says, we found the Messiah and brought him back to Jesus. In another case, Jesus has this encounter with the woman at the well. And when she finally discovers that he's the Messiah, when the scales fall off of her eyes and she sees Jesus for who he actually is, you hear this thud where she drops her water jar and runs into the town, bringing back all of the men of the town to tell them about what she's found, that she's found the Messiah. Really, this works in every area of life. You think about, you know, finding something awesome and free, right? You have no problem telling your friends and family about it. You're just so excited that you want to tell everyone you know, right? I mean, I remember the first time that I found out that if you wore tinfoil going into Chipotle, you could get a free burrito and a side of E. coli. <laughs> I mean, I was telling everybody I knew, I was just like, dude, you need to go in there. It doesn't matter where it's on your body. It's just, just go in there and I swear you're going to get a free burrito. And I remember at first people were very like reluctant. No way. That's not true. And then some ventured in there and they came out with a free burrito and they were telling others. Or for example, you know, think about uh, North Star. If you go there on Earth Day, you can get a free North Star burger. And I was just like, that doesn't make any sense. But then on Earth Day, I would drive past the North Star near my neighborhood and there would be a line stretching down the street for a $9 burger. And I'm like, you know, you don't have to tell people about something that's awesome and free. They just want to naturally do that. And I've seen this over and over again. People who are very timid, people who are not very social, who the moment that they come into a relationship with Christ have an excitement to share this message with other people. You don't have to tell them to do that. You don't have to force them to do that. It's just a natural instinct. Fourth, I think... Compassion for modern people's distress and dejection should be a driving force behind why we share the message of Christ with others. You know, the excitement that we feel eventually starts to wear down, but the thing that's going to compel us to continue sharing the message of Christ with others is the kind of compassion that Jesus had for modern people who are bewildered, hopeless, I think, you know, when Jesus in uh, Matthew 9, verse 36, saw the multitudes of Jerusalem, Matthew tells us that he had compassion on them because they were bewildered and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. This is characteristic of Jesus was that he had a heart for lost people. 
He loved people. He saw their confusion. You know, you walk around campus and you see people who seem like they have their lives all together. And you think to yourself, they would never be interested in spiritual things. But the moment you scratch just a little bit underneath the surface, you find that they have all the insecurities, all of the, of the worries that normal people face. You know, why do modern people feel more hopeless than ever? I think it's interesting. In a 2016 New York Times article, they show that the United States had hit a 30-year high of suicides in America. That from 1999 to 2015, the suicide rate had risen by 24%. It had tripled among women, girls, between the ages of 10 to 14. And of course, experts were speculating as to why this was happening in America. And some were pointing to economic distress. Some were saying that people were without jobs. And yet it's really interesting when you read the article that this trend held along uh, economic, along racial along age lines, and yet the one really interesting thing is the one group of people where there was actually a decline in suicides was among African-American men, arguably the most economically um, disenfranchised people in America. And so how do we account for that? Robert Putnam, a, a professor of public policy, at Harvard, argue that the real reason is hopelessness, that people today are without hope. You know, we live in a time now where I think most people don't feel like the future is bright. There's a sense that things are getting worse and that there's uncertainty about the future. You know, it's amazing. You just hear about a mass shooting and you're just numb to it these days. Or you hear a new grim report about the ecological disasters throughout the world. You think about our country today and we're more divided than ever. Of course people feel a sense of pessimism about the world in which we live. And I think one of the things that probably drives a lot of this is the fact that most people today have an uncertainty about The afterlife. There's a growing number of people who are either agnostic or atheistic, and they have essentially thrown away this concept of the afterlife. And so I think that for many people, this fear of death grips us, the uncertainty of what happens beyond this life. You know, it's interesting Many people don't really ask themselves this question. What happens when I die? I remember talking to a guy several years ago who was a postdoc at OSU in microeconomics. And talking to this guy was fascinating. I mean, he could could speak on practically any subject we brought up. And he'd read books about them. And I remember at one point, the, the conversation sort of transitioned toward more spiritual conversation. And at one point, I asked him, I said, so have you ever thought about what happens when you die? 
What's your view on the afterlife? And he just sat there, bewildered. And he said, honestly, I've, I've never asked that question. And it just, it, it, it blew my mind that a guy this smart who'd read on practically every topic that we had brought up in a two-hour conversation that he had never asked one of the central questions you have to ask yourself as a human being. What happens once I die? You know, I think a lot of times what we're doing is we're just, we just fixate on what's in front of us because we're so afraid of lifting up our head and asking some of these questions that we fear have no answers. Epicurus, the famous Greek philosopher, says, what men fear is not the fact that death is annihilation, but that it is not. It's not death itself that people fear. It's what happens to me after I die. The uncertainty of what lies behind this life. John Dryden, who is a famous poet, says, death in itself is nothing, but we fear to be what we know not what. We know not where. And Rousseau, one of the fathers of the Enlightenment, said, he who pretends to face death without fear is a liar. You know, there is, there is this fear that enslaves us that causes us to fixate on mundane tasks. And yet, we have to ask ourselves the question, this, this driving desire to earn this degree, this entering of the race to climb the corporate ladder, at the end of the day, if God doesn't exist and the afterlife doesn't exist, then in what sense does my life actually matter? What's the purpose? I think most people fear death because of what it does to our relationships. The fear that when this person dies, the person I love, that I'll never be able to see them again. Carl Jung, the famous Swiss psychoanalyst, says, death is indeed a fearful piece of brutality. There is no sense pretending otherwise. It is brutal not only as a physical event, but far more so Psychologically, a human being is torn away from us and what remains is the icy stillness of death. There no longer exists any hope of a relationship for all the bridges have been smashed at one blow. I remember reading about a story from Peter Kreeft who is a famous Christian philosopher and he describes how the seven-year-old boy had lost his three-year-old cousin. Confused, he asked his mom, he said, where is my cousin at now? She, not believing in God or the afterlife, didn't feel comfortable lying to him. So she said, you see, your cousin went back to the earth from where we all come. And death is really just the cycle of life. Next spring, when you see the flowers come up, you'll know that in a way, your cousin was able to make that happen. And what was the boy's response? He screamed, I don't want my cousin to be a part of the earth. And he ran away. You see, the modern conception of the afterlife, this belief that we are nothing more than biological matter and that's it, that collides with 
the intuition that all humans have that we're just, we're more than that. You know, the Bible teaches that God has broken us free from the enslavement of fear to death. Hebrews 2, verse 14 through 15 says, Jesus shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might actually break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. You know, for those of us who have met Christ, God has revealed to us the message of salvation. And now we can face death without fear because we have confidence that one day we will be with Him. And so, as we look out into the world and we see people bewildered, despairing, without hope, we should see, first of all, that we should have compassion upon them, but secondly, that we should empathize with them because we were just like them until God Himself revealed the truth to us. Now, I think this brings us to the point of this whole passage, which is the church's central mission is to bring the message of God's love to the entire world. Now, I think that there are a lot of different conceptions of what the church should be doing. I think some think that it's about gaining political influence and legislating Christian morality. Wrong. We study this in Romans 13. God doesn't want us to try to occupy these political positions so that we can try to legislate Christianity upon a culture that doesn't believe in God or Christianity. That's not what God wants. I remember uh, talking to a friend who was visiting our church, but it was also going out to a different church. And finally, he decided, I'm going to go to this other church and commit there. I hadn't seen him in a couple years. And I said, oh, how are things going at your church? And he said, oh, I stopped going there. I said, why? He's like, I couldn't tell which was more important, following Jesus or being a Republican. That's a shame. That's not what being a Christian's about. And I think a lot of people in our culture today believe that if you're going to become a Christian, that means that you need to align yourself politically with a certain party. That's just patently false. Secondly, it isn't about focusing on being holy and insulating ourselves from the evil in this world. God doesn't want us to try to create a cloister to try to protect ourselves from the encroaching evil of this world. You know, the problem is that when we look at evil that way, we're failing to see that the problem of moral wrongdoing and sin and evil in the world isn't something that's out there. It's something right here. That all the atrocities that have ever happened in the world, all of the jealousy and hatred that has led to murder, it all was born right here in the human heart. And so God doesn't want us to just try to insulate ourselves from the world. He actually calls us to go out into the world, to be a part of the world, to have compassion on the world, to love the world, and ultimately to share the message of Christ with them. It isn't about finding a place where we get our needs met or that it excites us. I think you see today in the American church, it's all about consumer Christianity. What church 
can provide the best experience, can provide the best childcare for my kids, that can get me excited about the things of God. You know, the church isn't here to serve you and to make you feel better and make you a better person. It's not about you. God wants to fix up your life so that you can go out and love and fix up other people and to help them. I was talking to my brother-in-law, and he, he works in the uh, furniture business, and uh, he did an install at a local church, and he's not a Christian, and he was like, man, I went out to this local church, and he said, that place is like King's Island. I mean, the amount of money they must have spent on this place was amazing. It was family-friendly. They had stuff for kids. They had this incredible dining area. And I just thought to myself, that's not what the church is about. You know, we want to make you feel comfortable, but this isn't like a place where we can cater to meet your needs. This is about a place where you can meet Christ and get equipped so that you can help and and love other people. And it isn't just about devoting ourselves to social causes and serving the poor. God says that we should serve the poor, that we should love the poor, that we should have a heart for the poor. And that in doing so, we can actually adorn the message of Christ by our actions. But that by itself is not life-transforming. That it's about sharing the message and love of Christ and that our deeds should be a reflection of that. Now, there are some common reactions I think people have to all of this. I think some might say, isn't it arrogant to persuade people to follow Jesus when they hold differing religious views? After all, we live in a culture where most people hold to religious pluralism. The idea is that there are many different pathways represented by these religions, but they all find their their way up to the summit, which is God. And so essentially, we shouldn't really worry about which religion is true. They're all expressions. They're all slivers of this meta-narrative, this overarching truth about who God is. A lot of times you hear people express this by a variety of different illustrations. The one that I've heard is the blind men and the elephant. You know, there are three blind men who are walking along and they stumble across an elephant. And one guy, he grabs the elephant's trunk. He says, I think this creature is a snake. And the other one says, no, 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 I think you're wrong. I think that this is actually a large tree as he's holding on to the elephant's leg. (laughs) The third contradicts him and says, no, 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 no. It's flat as he touches the side of the elephant. And of course, all of them are wrong. They're touching an elephant, but they don't know it. And so in the same way, when we talk about different world religions, they're all simply pathways to the same summit. They're all different expressions of one religion. Now, two things that I want to say about this. First of all, okay, when we say that Jesus is the only way to God, okay? It's not just Christians speculating about this. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
So these exclusive statements about Jesus aren't things that we've sort of conjured up in our minds. This is something that God himself says. Number two, when you think about this illustration, the person giving you the illustration is telling this from a perspective where they happen to know the full picture. And so they're guilty of doing the very thing that they're critiquing. Do you see? That they're saying that everybody else is blind and can only see a certain portion or feel a certain portion of this meta-narrative, and yet they presume that they are in a position to see the entire picture. And so it's hypocritical is what it is. I think some might say it's impossible to know which religion is actually true. I was last week talking to a guy uh, who is a graduate student from India, and this guy's incredibly sharp. He's got really great English, and we were talking after the teaching. He says, I got a few questions. And I said, yeah, what is it? He's like, you know the thing that rubs me the wrong way about Christianity? I was like, okay. <laughs> He's like, it's all about Jesus. He's like, if you're always focused on Jesus, then how can you focus on yourself? And I was like, that's a, that's a good question. I said, well, the thing you have to understand is that regardless of what you do or whatever you focus on, in some way you are living for something or someone. I was like, if you try to live for your profession, ultimately you're living for the approval of your colleagues. If you fall in love with someone, you are living for the approval and affection of your significant other. It's inescapable. And so at one point uh, during the conversation, he said, you know, when you were giving that illustration, because I, I gave the same illustration about the postdoc who was a um, postdoc in microeconomics, he said, you know, when you were telling that story, he was like, one of the things that I was feeling when you said that was you were like saying that directly to me. Because I have never thought about this question of what happens when I die. And I said, well, I think it's worth investigating that maybe, you know, there are a variety of different world religions. And I know that this is overwhelming, but I think that there's a way to think about this in a systematic way and to narrow down what's actually true. And he said this to me, I think it's impossible to know what, reli what religions are true. And one of the things I really liked about this guy was that since he was from India, he was just giving me his first reaction to Christianity. You know, he didn't suffer from what you see talking to people from the West where they just uh, are so used to Christianity that they lose sight of, of the main things that stand out to other people. And... At one point, I, I just said frankly to him, I said, look, when you make a statement like that, it's impossible to know which religion is true. I said, I just want to point out something. What you're saying is logically incoherent. He's like, what do you mean? I said, by claiming that it's impossible to know which religion is true, aren't you making a statement of fact about all religions? And he was like, bro, that's a good point. <laughs> um, so 
I think when you look at it, uh, even though it's overwhelming to look, to look at all the different world religions out there and to sort through them, I think that there's a way to find a, a religion that stands out. And in my opinion, it's Christianity. It stands out because it's personal. It stands out because God pre-authenticated its truthfulness in the Old Testament. And there's plenty of evidence out there. All right, let's draw a few conclusions. I think, first of all, you might look at this and think, what a daunting task to share the message of Christianity to the entire world. And I'm sure that the first disciples were overwhelmed by this request from Jesus. You know, Jesus' disciples weren't the kind of guys you would expect to accomplish something like this on their own. You know, if they were handing out high school superlatives, these guys were not the ones likely of changing the face of the earth, right? (laughs) They were ordinary working class men, and they didn't seem extraordinary in any sort of way. And yet God used them powerfully, in part because Jesus promised to give them and us resources to accomplish this mandate. The Bible teaches that God gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us so that it's not about how smart we are or how persuasive we are, but really it's a supernatural event that takes place when somebody actually meets Christ. And finally, if you're here tonight and you're wondering, what's all the excitement about? I think you should find out for yourself why people are so excited about Jesus. If you're just starting along the journey, I think maybe the next step you could take is trying to investigate what world religions are out there and learning about them. For those of us who may have been investigating Christianity already and may have already concluded that it's probably Jesus, but we're afraid of taking that next step, maybe what you should do is you should call out to God and ask If you're out there, God, show yourself to me. And if God is real, he will answer. And finally, if you're here tonight and you sense that God is telling you, I'm real, I'm here, and I want a relationship with you, you have an opportunity tonight as we pray to turn to him and to receive this free gift that he wants to offer to you. Thankful that in addition to giving us salvation, you've given us a mission. You've given us a real purpose in life. And um, I thank you for that. It's something that excites me, something that just drives me. And I pray that we can become followers who adopt this, 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 this um, mission, that this drive to serve you and to share this message of Christ with others. I pray especially for those of us, Lord, who have never met you and uh, who are maybe at a point where we realize you are real and that um, your offer is real. I pray that we would have the courage just to turn to you and receive the forgiveness that you offer through Jesus Christ. We thank you for anyone who did that in his name. Amen. 
This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.